I shared this last week, and I'm going to start with it again today. It is estimated that one billion people, side note, whenever I say one billion or one million, I think of um, Austin Powers. Anyone else? Yeah, there's a few of you. Okay. It's not funny, though. One billion people live on less than $2.50 a day in the world today. That there is an estimated 1 billion people who today are staying alive or trying to stay alive with resources that equal about $2.50 a day. Now, I'm looking out here. I know a few of you have got $2.50 sitting in a cup, right? I bought a $2.50 coffee yesterday, so just context, right? One billion people live on less than $2.50 a day. And because of that, we have invited you to observe what we call a week of solidarity, something we adopted from our parent church, where we're asking you to spend one week, sometime in the next couple of weeks or couple of months, maybe during the summer, one week where you eat on only $2.50 a day. A intentional fast in solidarity with the billion other people who do it. That's the invitation. We're going to talk about that more at the end, but if you didn't hear the message last week, that's where we're headed. Um, before we get there, though, uh, I want to tell you, growing up, I, um, I came to know Jesus at a pretty young age. I, I was a, raised in a Christian family, and um, so it, it was what I always knew. But, of course, in my high school years, I started making my faith my own. Now, the Christianity that, that I was raised in, like the church I went to, it didn't, it didn't make sense to me. Um, it was a predominantly older people who my dad, who was the pastor, was generally frustrated with, and I would overhear him complaining about. And, you know, anything that makes your parents upset, my mom would complain about them. They probably, hopefully they don't listen to the podcast. Um, They they don't want me to say this, but this was a long time ago. Uh, My dad's retired now. But my mom would complain about it because we lived in a parsonage, which is a house a church owns that is provided to the pastor. We don't have one, by the way. Um, and it's, it's, a lot of churches are doing away with that. But we live in a parsonage with seven kids, four-bedroom house. Can you imagine the state of that house? And then follow up with the question, have you ever met church people who own property? Do you imagine how they felt about the state of the house? And then have you ever met a mother who's doing her best? Imagine how she felt about how they felt about the state of her house. Do you see what I'm saying? So this is, the, this, is, this is what Christianity looked like to me. And I wasn't interested. I'm like, this is, this is just causing stress for my family. It's just causing, like, these people aren't even nice. I wasn't interested. But I was, thankfully enough, introduced to the Scripture, so I started reading Scripture. And I came across all these passages. I was like, this is, this is good stuff. And I kept reading. And, and I kept reading all these passages about what it means to care for the poor. What it means to make sacrifices. And my mom introduced me to stories of these white missionaries serving around the world, making great sacrifices, Jim Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott, maybe some of you know these stories. Fantastic stories of heroes who make great sacrifices. And I was inspired by that. I always was. So this is what I did. I remember that this went so far. I was, I was convinced. I went to school because I was going to be a missionary, and I was going to go to the poorest part of the world, and I was going to live there and be a missionary. That was what I was going to do. 
And uh, so I thought, I'm in high school. I need to prepare for this. So you know what I did to prepare to be a missionary in the poorest part of the world? I, I, this is how my brain works. I said, you know what? I've got to get used to not sleeping in a comfortable bed. So I practice sleeping on the floor. And uh, I don't say that to brag, but you know, it's a pretty impressive for a high schooler. And I do. I sleep on a floor for like a week. I get over that pretty quick. I end up back in bed. And I go to, I go to high school, oh, I go through college, and uh, eventually it turns out that I'm not called to do this. But, but I ran across these really formative passages, the type of passages that make me think, well, maybe I should do a little something different. Maybe I should take a little bit of risk. Maybe I should be okay with being a little uncomfortable. And I thought of that when I was studying the passage we're going to look at today. Because this is like OG scripture for me. This, this goes all the way back to my formative years in the faith. This is one of those passages that I studied and probably memorized. It's out of the book of James, which is one of my favorite books. I can't say I've preached on this passage because I like preaching on things I haven't spent time with. If you, if you don't know that about me, I like looking at obscure passages because it's interesting. So I haven't preached on this one as far as I know because... You know, I sat with it for so long in high school. But we're going to look at it today, and here's what it has to say. James is writing a letter. He's uh, writing in the context of wisdom literature. James is one of the few books in the New Testament that falls into the genre of wisdom literature, which means he's giving practical advice for everyday life. James was considered a brother of Jesus. If you compare Jesus' teaching to James, you see a lot of similarities. Paul liked to talk about, use military metaphors. James and Jesus, they love, you know, using a different kind of metaphors, often agricultural. So you do get some, like, family resemblance in James's writing compared to Paul's. And uh, um, this is what he's saying. He's talking about faith. He, uh, in some ways, is disagreeing with Paul. We're not going to get too much in that. But this is what he says. James chapter 2, verse 14, it says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? So, suppose there's a brother or a sister who's without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, you know, be warm, be well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action, is dead. I'm not the same Christian I was in high school. I've come to realize that a lot of missionary endeavors is just modern-day colonialism. I won't get into it. But that there's often riddled in justice work, the white savior complex, I'm going to come and help and save other people, and they need me. There's a lot of scripture passages I used to read and study and were taught, and I've gone and I've spent all of my undergrad with a biblical studies degree and then four years of seminary, and I go back to these scripture passages, like, that's not what that passage means. That's one of the reasons why I'm off in this class. Like, I was taught the wrong thing. This is out of context. This isn't even helpful. And there's a lot of scripture. I'm like, man, I need to relearn this. I need to reapply it. This is, I've come a long way since high school. But you know what? All of those years later, after years of study and scholarship, 
with all of these degrees, which you know how I feel about if you were at outdoor worship. This passage still means exactly what I thought it meant in high school, which is one of the reasons why I love it. Let me read it again. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You know what I love about this passage? It's pretty simple. And and I tend to be a literalist, which is dangerous in Scripture, because most of Scripture isn't meant to be taken literally. It's theological. But this is making a logical point that's very important. He's saying, when you claim to have faith, when you claim to love God, when you claim to be a person of faith, and you see someone in need, and you do nothing about it, your faith is irrelevant. And after all these years of history of studying, guess what? That's still what it means. And it's still convicting to this day. Now, some of you are going to say, you know what? This is a matter of spiritual gifts. You know what? Joe, that's your calling. God clearly placed it on your heart at a young age to care for the poor, to love the poor. We know that that's your thing. You're known for it. You talk about it too much. Like, that's not me. Like, I have a different calling in my life. That's not, what, that's not for me. God has, God's using me for other things. That's not, that's, that's, I'm called to a different kind of ministry. My focus is on something else. Well, you know what? James is preparing for that argument. And this is what James has to say about that logic. Next verse, he says, but someone will say, Well, you have faith, and I have deeds. Or you can say, I have faith, and you have deeds. You know, we just focus on different things. Maybe the serving the poor is not really my thing. I I trust God in other ways. I live out my faith in other ways. But James says this going on. He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by by my deeds. How do you show someone that you believe? What, it's, what it is that we say we believe if you're not doing anything about it. He says this, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The point he's trying to make is pretty simple. Faith in God can't be simply an intellectual assent. Here, here's what I mean by that. It's possible... For me to list out, and churches do this, we we do it sort of, our our denomination does it. We sort of, here's what I believe. Here's what I believe about God, and here's what I believe about Jesus, and here's how I believe about Scripture. And here's, you know, and it could be a couple pages, it could be one page, you could summarize it, and you got this statement. This is what I believe. I have, and then at the bottom, there's a little place where you sign, you know, like, I believe this. Sign your name. This is what I believe. I have subscribed to this faith, and I have decided that this is what I believe. He says, great, demons would sign that. Do do you see what I'm saying? Like, oh, demons would say, oh, yeah, all those things are true. The question isn't whether you believe those things. The question is, is how does it make your life different? What are you doing about it? That's what he says, verse 20, you foolish person, do do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? 
Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Um, pause there. He, he's, he's speaking to a predominantly Jewish culture, so he's going to use a couple of famous Jewish people in Jewish storytelling in the Hebrew Bible. These are Old Testament stories. He's going to reference Abraham. He's going to reference this woman named Rahab. And the first one he's going to talk about is Abraham. Now, Abraham, for the Jewish faith, was the stuff. I mean, Abraham was the best you could get. I mean, Abraham was the father Abraham, had many children, I am one of them. You, were, you may be saying that song. Abraham was everything. So he's like, look at Abraham. And he, he tells a story about, he references a story about Abraham where Abraham offered his son Isaac on the altar. Verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, which is a kind of an important verse that we build our understanding around salvation. You know, you believed, and, and that, that's how we are made righteous. And he was called God's friend. Friends with God. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Here's the story they reference. It's a violent, terrible story. It's a story about Abraham, a shepherd, thousands and thousands of years ago, wandering around. And God tells him, hey, Abraham, I need you to take your son that I promised you. Not only did I promise you a son, but I promised you a family. It's the whole original promise in in Scripture. It's one of the big promises. Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants outnumber the stars. It's a very important promise. I'm going to make the the source of that, the, the, the way in which that promise will be accomplished. I want you to take that promise, and I want you to lay it on the altar and kill it. Your son. Now, we read that story, and we think, what kind of God would ask that? Um... And people throughout the ages have wrestled with this story. And we're not studying this story today, but I will give you my my brief perspective. At that time, the fact that God asked him to sacrifice his son wasn't the surprising part of the story. That's just what God's did. So Abraham's not surprised by that. The gods would often ask people to sacrifice things that they loved, their children, their families. I mean, it's grotesque, but that's, that's how people viewed the gods during that time. So that wasn't the surprising part. The surprising part of the story, which is the part you always want to pay attention to, now we're getting into a little Bible class here. The surprising part was that, that Abraham was, not that Abraham was asked to kill his son, but before he killed his son as a sacrifice, God stepped in and said, actually, I'm going to provide one for you. And from that point on, God never asked someone to offer their child as a sacrifice again, besides his own, and you know, Jesus and all that. But God stepped in, but the point of the story still remains. Faith lived out in action will always require you to risk the things that you love. I mean, how many of you were here last week and thought about the week of solidarity and started thinking about all the things that, like, how would I give, you know, how am I going to give this up or give that up or how am I going to... And that's just a micro example of of, of what we're talking about. But faith in action will always require us to risk the things that we love. For example, um, you know, myself, as I've shared, and and Alyssa, uh, uh, my wife, uh, we've always had a heart for the the marginalized and the poor. And um, when we were moving to Columbus to plant a church in the Grandview area, 
uh, through a series of conversations, we, uh, we started checking out the neighborhood of Franklinton and ultimately decided to buy a home there. Felt um, called to buy a home, but also like the doors were opening up there. And um, we were kind of excited at the time, even more so than now, it was, uh, it was what I call a difficult neighborhood, you know? And uh, I remember I was talking to somebody, uh, and uh, they, they, they're the ones who mentioned Franklinton to us, and then we told them we bought a house at Franklinton, and they were like, well, I thought it'd be a good place for a church, not a good place for you to live. And, um, but for us, you know, those are one of the same things. And then ironically, we live there, but the church is somewhere else. So it's complicated. But, um, you know, since moving there, our side neighbor uh, who lives over here, uh, he doesn't live there anymore, but he was just two shots away from an overdose. Our front neighbors uh, sell drugs, but they're like, you know, they're still good neighbors. They're the good drug dealers. Um, you know, they look out for our house and, you know, like, I don't know if that's an appropriate term or not, but like they're, you know, like they're, they're good. They're, they're good people and we like them. Um, the backdoor neighbors were selling drugs, not good at all. Um, bad drug dealers and they were pushing women and just, I mean, during that time our car was stolen, our truck was broken into twice. Um, one day, we were outside playing in our yard, and someone in the alleyway, I guess a rival gang had come up, and there was a, there was a couple gunshots right out on the other side of our fence with Finn in the yard. And all of this stuff happens, and, and you know, I wasn't worried about myself or Alyssa. We kind of had, you know, this is what we wanted to do. We signed up for it. I'm not asking for pity. Like, we, you know, people live here. We want to live here, too. But there were times where I was like, what kind of risk am I putting on my child? Now, that's what I think of when I hear the story of Abraham offering his child as a sacrifice. Now, I don't think God asks us to sacrifice our children in any way. But I did know that God wanted us to live in Franklinton, and I wrestled with, like, well, is that too much risk for our kid, and what's going to happen if something happens to him? I remember the first night we were there. Alyssa remembers it, too. Uh, we were going to fix up the house before we moved in, so there's no furniture. We're on the second floor. We bought an air mattress. We blow it up. We have an infant living on the second floor of a house that needs fixed up. No fan. And so we spend the night listening to the sounds of our neighborhood, and the people arguing, the people walking by, the people stopping to get their fix. I ended up sleeping on the floor, I guess you could say but uh, on an air mattress, so it was okay. And I think in a lot of ways, there was a certain risk involved. But here's what I've learned, and I could give you a dozen examples. Sometimes what we view as a risk, God intends as an investment. I'll give, you, I'll give it to you in a way that you can understand if you, if you like money. The house we bought has tripled in value. What a risk. Now take that and apply it to every other area of our life. My son is better off because we live there. We're better off. We love the neighborhood. In fact, I was going to tell you that it's been gentrifying so quickly that it's not even the same neighborhood anymore. Except for yesterday, while we were gone, it turns out the police chased someone into my yard. He hopped the fence, he ran around my house, got stuck in our privacy fence, which is a wood fence, and then he Kool-Aid manned his way out the fence. You know what I'm saying? Like he literally slammed into my wooden fence and broke it enough to get out. 
Um, all the while, somehow my dog is out, so she escapes, and we find her a couple hours later. She's still traumatized. I wasn't even sure Alyssa was going to come today because she was acting real weird. But man, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And I don't know what you're called to, but when you apply your faith and actually do what we say we believe we do, it will feel risky, but over time, you'll realize it's actually an investment and that the dividends are, you, you can't even put words into it. I think of like those who've gotten connected with the Little Bottoms, having no experience serving at Little Bottoms, and how it feels a little risky at first, but over time you develop relationships and perspective that you just wouldn't get unless you show up. And the same is true for this story. The, the next story, besides Abraham, he says in verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So he tells a story about Rahab. And this is fascinating because she wasn't an Israelite. She wasn't a Jew. She, but she was praised by the people of Israel because she helped them. There were some spies who had snuck into Jericho and they got into some trouble. They end up at Rahab's house. Now scholars would suggest, ask the question, what were they doing at Rahab's house? I mean, that's just a, it's an honest question. And uh, Rahab hides them, protects them in exchange for protecting her family. Now she risked... That was illegal for her to do. If she was caught, she would have probably been killed. But she risked her life to help the people of God. Now, Abraham and Rahab, two Old Testament characters, are considered in the Jewish faith as the heroes of hospitality. Rahab, of course, offers hospitality. She welcomes the stranger. That's how we define hospitality. She welcomes the stranger. She protects them. But Abraham, too. The, this story of Abraham offering Isaac isn't the only story he's known for. There's a story where he welcomes three strangers. He doesn't know who they are or where they're from, but he automatically offers to make them food, and he takes care of them, and he gets the whole household involved, and he welcomes the stranger in. Now, do you think it's a coincidence that James references Abraham and Rahab in a story where he's talking about what it means to care and feed and clothe people who are in need? Welcoming the stranger is the solution. And here's the crazy part about Abraham's story. When he welcomed those three strangers, he didn't even know that they were angels or angels of the Lord or basically physical manifestations of God in the flesh. Which leads us to Hebrews chapter 13. A New Testament book says this, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Like Abraham. Hospitality is all about widening your circle to care for and welcome those you don't know yet. So suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. What do you do? Hospitality says, come on in. Have something to eat. We could talk about this all day long. I'm not going to. I want to show a quick illustration um, from Francis Chan. I, I, I don't agree with everything from Francis Chan, but I do have some respect for him. And I'll tell you what, there's not a better sermon illustration than this. I think about it often, uh, and I think you'll agree. So let's watch that real quick. Look, when, when, when my daughter comes to me and I say, hey, go, go clean your room, she knows better. She, she's not going to come back a couple hours later and say, hey, Dad, I memorized what you said to me. You said, go clean your room. You know, what am I gonna say? Oh, good job, that's what I wanted. 
No, and, and she's not gonna come to me and say, Dad, I can say, go clean your room in Greek. Listen, that's not gonna fly. And, and what if she says, you know what? My friends and I, we're gonna gather together and every week we're gonna have a study and we're gonna figure out what it would look like if I cleaned my room. <laughs> no, none of that's gonna fly. Just go and clean it. She knows that. So why do we think that this type of thinking or this type of talk is gonna work with Jesus? I mean, Jesus was as black and white as you get. He would look at people and he'd say, why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I say? He says that in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I ask you to do? I mean, why would you call someone your master and then not listen to him? And, and he says in Matthew 7, 21, he goes, listen, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. It's only the one who actually does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Last week, I introduced you to a scripture reading. Uh, Isaiah 58, many of you are familiar with it already. It's one of my favorites. It's one of those formative passages early on in my faith. And it says simply this, is, is, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Fasting, the act of giving something up, which by the very nature of that creates space for something else. I eat less, I have more money. I do less, I have more time. I spend less time on Facebook, I have more time with friends. You, you, Fasting, by the very nature, creates space for something else. He says, is this not the fasting that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Now, when we invite you to find a week, your own week, you can set the time, to do a week of solidarity where you spend a week fasting intentionally by eating on only $2.50 a day for a week. What we're doing is saying, hey, you don't need to memorize Isaiah 58. And you don't need to know what it said in the original Hebrew. You can look it up if you want to. It's available online. You need to read Hebrew for it to be helpful. I think Delaney, you know that. You know a little bit of Hebrew, yeah? A few others in church might know some Hebrew. So you can do that if you want, but I'm not asking you to. I'm not even asking you to get together in a Bible study to discuss what would it look like for us to do Isaiah 58. It's just a simple invitation, a small step, really, in the direction that God is calling us to, to say, hey, let's do this one thing as a way, as training wheels, to become the people that God has called us to do. It's, it's not like I'm asking you to welcome strangers into your house yet. I know with COVID and everything else, maybe you're not there. And it's hard and it's complicated and we can have discussions around how me and Alyssa have tried to do this and how it's gone well and how it's gone poorly and, and, and many others. We can talk about that. Maybe there is room to talk about that. I'm not even there yet. All I'm saying is, what if we took a step in that direction? To fast in solidarity with the one billion people who live on less than 250 a day. And maybe your temptation will be to memorize it or to get it printed on a sticker or you know, discuss it, but I'm asking you to do it. To take a week and fast in solidarity. And not just by eating on less than $2.50 a day, but then taking that money that you've saved because you didn't buy the coffee or the restaurant or you didn't eat out like me and Alyssa did do like every weekend. 
and you give it to an organization that's making a difference, it's feeding people or, or helping the oppressed or helping the marginalized, and now we've just done a small step towards making, not only changing who we are, but changing the world. So here's how it works. It's very simple. We're going to talk about it one more week, and then, you know what, if this isn't your thing, you're not going to hear about it. I'm not, I'm not interested in making anyone feel guilty. It's just not my personality. I'm just, this is just, try to, I think this is a good thing, and I'm trying to do the best I can to explain it. So we'll talk about it one more week, and uh, it's very simple. You go to our website, centralcity.co slash food, or if you go to our menu, you can see Week of Solidarity. There's also a button on the front page. There's also an article in the news page. You can find it on our website. And it just lays out how it works. It explains why. It talks about how this isn't necessarily for children, how this might not work for you because of your dietary needs, how you have to put your own health first. But it gives you ideas on what you can eat for $2.50 a day and structures it around that. And we have a very simple automated email. And it, it, it's a little confusing, but it's not that confusing. You sign up, and a week from when you sign up will be the first day of your week of solidarity. That's the idea. So I signed up last week, and uh, then this week I start getting daily emails for seven days. They include encouragement, instructions, reflection questions, scripture readings, just everything you need, and they come. And honestly, you know what? Uh, ours started on Saturday, but I'm not going to start my week of solidarity till this Monday. And so, you know, the emails aren't following on the right day, but they'll be in my inbox, and I'll figure it out, and you could do the same. There's, this isn't about legalism. You know, just you can, you're adults. You can figure this out as a practice, as a spiritual practice, and as a practical practice. But you get these emails that will help you guide through. You can sign up for those. You can read about it. You can get ideas. There's even a feedback form that you can share about your experience. We'd love to hear it if you do this what it was like, what you learned, what you heard from God, et cetera. You can do, find all of that on our website, centralcity.co slash food. It's one way that we can take our faith and put it into action. It's not the only way. And maybe you've sat here and there's something else that came to mind. And you said, you know what? I need to do that thing that I've been putting off. In which case I say, forget about the week of solidarity. Go do that thing. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like, this isn't about me or or a particular program. It's about you taking what you say you believe and putting it into action. Will you pray with me? God, we give you thanks. That you're not done talking, that you're not done speaking into our lives and that you haven't forgotten us or abandoned us. Lord, I lift up especially those uh, right now who are hungry, I think about those who live in war-torn countries, who are on the road towards a refugee camp, who are living off of the generosity and hospitality of, of uh, humanitarian workers and refugee uh, service personnel, and, and all of those who are affected by war and genocide. God, break our heart the way that yours is. Lord, we know that we can't solve complex problems that... that that this world is filled with, but, but Lord, help us to be a part of the solution. Lord, we know that we are not the solution, but Lord, help us be a part of it. And show us what little thing we could do. A little act of faith, as risky as it might feel, help it to be an investment in your kingdom of God. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. The one who lived, the one who died, the one who rose again, and the one who will come again. In your name.